0: Hi, and welcome to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and thanks to you, we are now in the top 1% of podcasts. We have passed the 200th episode mark of Beyond Well, hardly a stinker in the whole bunch. So we want to make sure you've had a chance to hear them all. We have gathered up a few of our best episodes on depression, and we're going to highlight them in the next few weeks. But first, we want to thank our sponsor, Active Recovery TMS, your choice for TMS in the Pacific Northwest. There is no reason for anyone to suffer from treatment-resistant depression with the technology of transcranial magnetic stimulation now available and covered by most insurances. For more information or to figure out if you qualify for treatment, go to activerecoverytms.com. It would be a shame not to hear this show again, highlighting the incredible Lydia Yuknovich. Hey, this is Sheila Hamilton, host of Beyond Well. This podcast is for people who want to learn more about the interior of our lives. I've wanted to host a show for a long time where people could feel less alone in dealing with the things we all face from time to time. Every one of us is on a spectrum of mental health from days we feel pretty good to days we're really struggling and we need to stop pretending that the hard times don't exist or that the hardest part of being human is something we need to be ashamed of. We're going to take one topic at a time And hopefully you'll come away with some new ideas about how to cope and gain a new toolbox of emotional skills today we're talking with author lydia yuknovich she's the author of nine books including the chronicle of water the small backs of children the book of joan which has been optioned for a film by Kristen Stewart. Is that right? Correct. Oh, scary. Wow. (laughs) And exciting. (laughs) And The Misfits Manifesto. Lydia is also the founder of a literary hub that helps nurture new stories from diverse storytellers. Lydia's TED Talk, The Beauty of Being a Misfit, has been viewed 2,682,000 times. And it's the first time since I've been watching TED that I felt like someone was sending me a code in her message We are not the stories they make of us.
1: Although it didn't happen the day that dream letter came through my mailbox, I did write a memoir called The Chronology of Water. In it are the stories of how many times I've had to reinvent a self from the ruins of my choices. The stories of how my seeming failures were really just weird-ass portals to something beautiful. All I had to do was give voice to the story. There's a myth in most cultures about following your dreams. It's called the hero's journey. But I prefer a different myth that's slightly to the side of that or underneath it. It's called the misfits myth. And it goes like this. Even at the moment of your failure, right then, you are beautiful. You don't know it yet, but you have the ability to reinvent yourself endlessly. That's your beauty. You can be a drunk, you can be a survivor of abuse, you can be an ex-con, you can be a homeless person, you can lose all your money or your job or your husband or your wife or the worst thing of all, a child. You can even lose your marbles, you can be standing dead center in the middle of your failure and still (laughs) I'm only here to tell you, you are so beautiful. Your story deserves to be heard because you, you rare and phenomenal misfit, you new species are the only one in the room who can tell the story the way only you would. To me, that
0: makes me cry again because I think of someone like myself who on the day that I actually first watched that Ted talk was really in a state of panic and anxiety and felt like I was a massive failure. And the fact that your words made me feel like I had an ally in the struggle was something else.
1: I'm so glad to hear that. It makes it worth it that I almost died trying to do it. (laughs) I want to hear more about why you almost died. What happened? I'm a very shy person. And I knew all along that there was a possibility I might die on the stage (laughs) trying to do something that public or large I think the dress and the boots probably held me up and saved me Um, because I was definitely in an altered state and scared, witless, and my husband was in the audience, so I also thought, well, if I do die, he can come up and kind of gently pick me up off the stage and put me somewhere. Lydia,
0: when I read the chronology of water, I had never experienced someone speak about violence, sex abuse, the trauma of growing up, being really in that kind of hysteria almost daily and come away feeling like suffering isn't beautiful, but you're going to get through it. Mm -hmm. When, at what point in your life did you become conscious enough to, to be able to use writing as your way out of what you were experiencing?
1: It likely began in a process of reading literature where I would recognize little bits of self. I remember the first time I read Audrey and Rich's poem, Diving into the Wreck, which is about finding a wrecked ship at the bottom of the ocean. But to me, the poem was about how sometimes you go to the bottom of the ocean in your life hmm. and you have to make choices about whether or not you're going to come back up or what's down there. And so it was reading that brought me to little glimpses of self that I could bear to look at, and the writing part came out of me under duress and trauma during a time when I was incredibly sad after the death of my daughter. I spent some years living under an overpass, and scribbles in a notebook came out of me that were... Kind of mumbo jumbo. Wow. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But later, when I looked at those same scribbles after I'd gotten help and kind of re entered society, there were these little stories of girls who didn't die embedded in them little tiny stories like this long mm-hmm. of girls with their hair on fire mm-hmm. or girls who put their arms back on with tape. Wow. Um, and when I could see those stories, I started writing.
0: This quote, um, suffering isn't beautiful, nor is it a state of grace, but you can swim to the wreckage at the bottom and bring something back to the surface that can help others. I wish that I had heard that quote earlier so that I could not spend so much time at the bottom. Right. But um, And so it's what I want to talk about today is the process that you used even under the underpass in recognizing writing is something that can bring me back to myself. Recognizing my body is something that I can, can bring me back to myself. And in the writing classes that you give at Corporeal, I was always so struck by this um, statement. When you would say, Sheila, when you're stuck, come back to your body, come back to how you're breathing, how you're sweating, what your fingernails feel like, how dry and brittle they are today. Um, And, What is the point of an instructor who says that to a student? What does coming back to the body do?
1: Well, two things. Uh, I actually believe that storytelling is medicine for life. I don't mean it in a smarmy way. I mean it in a can save your life way that when we can conjure stories about how to live and who we are, we can stay alive and keep going. The body piece is that Everyone, everywhere, is carrying their entire life experience in or on their body. And it's written there. And there are places on your body that are holding different experiences, literally. Like if I write about a boob, something's going to come out about my life, some story I've been holding there that I haven't told anyone, just waiting for voice and the right time to... Expressed in a way that can reflect something useful back to me. So I actually think of bodies as story holders Hmm. and it's how we keep from flying apart usually in times of duress or grief or pain.
0: You know, it's fascinating for me about it. In order for me to sort of calm down after the traumas that I've experienced in my life and sadly, um, I've had a few. (laughs) It's that um, mindfulness was incredibly helpful because it does the same thing. It actually forced me to know where my feet were, to understand where my breath was coming from, to be able to actually come back to my body in order to calm my brain. Do you both use that in your practice?
2: Yeah. In hearing this, the thing that shows up for me is this idea that in my head, I can go anywhere at any time. I, I mean, our minds are these teleporters and time travelers. I can go to last year uh, at the best part of the year, or I can go to last month, the worst part. And sometimes I don't really feel like, and I think other people experience this, that I'm a teleporter and time traveler without a rudder. I I wind up in places and at times that I don't want to be. But something about our senses, something about being in our bodies is right here, right now. I can only breathe this breath. I can remember feeling hungry Mm. yesterday, but I can't actually feel yesterday's hunger. And there's something grounding and out of my head by returning to a sensation of my fingernail or, uh, what it feels like inside of my shoe right now, uh, where the pressure is on my various toes or how my breath feels. Is it cooler or warmer as the air comes in and out.
0: You're listening to the Beyond Well podcast adapted for radio, where today we're talking with author Lydia Yuknovich. If you want to hear full shows in their original entirety, please go to Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton. One thing that you've uh, written about so beautifully, Lydia, and I still see it in so many of your gorgeous posts is how you return to the water as almost like a different being that you are kind of, I think of you as a mermaid. Well, look at your braid. I mean, (laughs) you are a mermaid, just so beautiful. But the water was one thing that just saved you. Does it continue to have that effect on
1: you? Absolutely. I mean, when I was a child, I was a competitive swimmer Mm -hmm. starting at age like six And you're right, I didn't have the consciousness or capability to articulate what was wrong and invent a way to... But I was really strong. And every moment I was away from the dreaded Oedipal house in the swimming pool was uh, another day of saving my own life. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. even though I couldn't have articulated like this as a child, I think... You know, I was changing the story from I'm drowning wow to I can swim several miles and my father never learned to swim. And so, you know what I mean? I, I think, think even as a kid, yeah. we changed the stories mm-hmm. just because that's when we have the most phenomenal imaginations. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't have said I'm changing the story. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's my life. Right. Mm-hmm. But but that that bandwidth of imagination that children who survive and endure have is a storytelling, you know, superpower. That's right. Mm
0: -hmm. Lydia, you write so beautifully and honestly, um, when you struggle as I, I try to do too, because I want to normalize the experience for people and just remind people, there's a lot of us who go through these periods where you're just not at your best. And it seemed to me that, um, summer, hurts you more in your psyche than any other season. So would you call what you struggle with a
1: seasonal affective disorder? Well, nobody wants me to because everyone loves the sun, and my son and I love the gray, rainy. You know, we're giddy when it's gray and rainy, and it's I've so noticed. It's so much more romantic. I know. I've noticed. We're go. definitely in the minority.
0: There. Or, or would you say it's it would be considered clinical depression when you actually go through those periods?
1: I suspect it's rooted in life experiences and not so much the season. Although, when I was growing up as a kid, I fainted in the sun a lot with the blue eyes and the blonde hair. I wasn't good at it, at being in the sun. So I would faint, and a couple of kind of terrible things happened to me with my father in that August period. Oh, no kidding. So I have emotional trauma there. Yeah. And and so I think all the things combined, the external things and the internal things. Yeah. Um, August was also a time I was in academia for thirty years before I retired recently. And August is the dread of having to start the new term. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the oh, man. But I love fall, man. it's my favorite time yeah. of year. But that that strange setting mm-hmm. up for, you know, the slog of labor. So I think it's all those things oh, together. Boy, you're speaking to me so, with so
0: much intensity because my husband died in um, December, but he left or went to a psychiatric area in October. Uh, Sophie was diagnosed with leukemia in October. Mm-hmm. It, I remember. And, and you know what's, <laughs> I, I'm probably gonna lose it here, but I used to love the change of colors. And now it's like a reminder mm-hmm. how the body holds this trauma, it's like you're going to have to remember this again. You're going to have to look at the way the light is falling. You're going to have to look at these colors and you're going to have Mm -hmm. to remember this. And I've tried really hard to start to relate to nature in that way of, yeah, everything has the seasonality, as does our trauma. It goes through a really intense period and then it can die and it can also be reborn in a completely different way. I say that in my mind, and also I know that (laughs) I'm going to go through it every single fall. I don't get out. There is a a way, I I think, you know, this is... the, the body keeps score. I'm sure that mm-hmm. you guys have have talked about that, that if we really begin to allow ourselves to actually go p- through that period, I mean, one of the things that helped me was rather than thinking, oh, I, I have to do more yoga and I have to uh, take more walks and I have to be on a clean, green diet was actually just to go, oh, you know what? I'll probably be sleeping more. Uh, I won- yes. need to take care of myself in terms of allowing myself times to cry during this time. And thinking about this process as, oh, this is going to be the tough period. Go ahead and feel it a little. Yeah. It, la- it lasts less if I allow myself to do that.
1: Agreed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I for myself, I'm a tiny bit better. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe when I'm 97, I'll have licked this. <laughs> um, but I've stopped trying to uh, fix it or cure it and I've started trying to understand how to move through it differently mm. which is exactly what you're saying mm. and yeah. it, it it's shorter. Yeah. What are
0: some of the things that you can do um, other than just allowing the grief to come up? What do you do that
1: works? Well, of course swimming because I'm just better in water. Y'all just have to trust me. Yeah. <laughs> this is the hard part. Being in the air on the ground yeah. with uh-huh. the people's so always swimming um, I've been meditating for about 20 years now and that has helped me tremendously. Yeah. Painting and big painting, like where you have to step up to it with your whole body. I'm not any good, so don't hear me wrong, okay. <laughs> uh, but the action of, of expression and color and art with a very big canvas wow. for some reason has helped me in summer. Yeah. I don't even have some magical understanding of why. Except it's very physical, it's not analytical, I'm not mm-hmm. deeply thinking about my woe, yeah. yeah, and I have to move back and forth as a body with this. It's like, if writing could be a room, it, it feels mm-hmm. more like I'm getting into a form of expression where I can step up to it and it's as big as me or bigger. Wow. It's pretty cool.
0: You're listening to the Beyond Well podcast adapted for radio, where today we're talking with author Lydia Yuknovich. If you want to hear full shows in their original entirety, please go to Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton. And if you're an employer who wants to learn more about providing mental health programming to your employees, go to beyondwellsolutions.com. Lydia, I want to uh, talk to you a little bit about your willingness to take on violence against women, the the small backs of children. That's the one. Yeah. That uh, and the book It's in all of them. (laughs) It's in all of them. It is in all of them. I think one of the reasons you're so popular with young writers especially young female writers is because they they see a different path for themselves in the characters that you draw.
1: Would you talk about that a little? It's re- in deeply related to what we're talking about right now because I try and make girl characters and women characters and Men characters and non-gender conforming characters who are changing the script Mm -hmm. or the story. Mm -hmm. And so Small Bucks of Children has a little girl in a terrible war zone with terrible, the most violent things happening to her. And the storyline is that she has to figure out how to save herself. Mm -hmm. And she becomes an artist, which is a biographical truth for me, how I saved myself by finding self-expression rather than self-destruction. Mm-hmm. So to make characters who break the story we've been told or the storylines that are making us stuck or feeling dead or mm-hmm. so victimized we can't move, to restory uh, that same character or yourself with a new plot line yeah. <laughs> where, mm-hmm. where you move differently inside the story. And so fiction writing has been... I I would call it like swimming. Mm. Fiction writing has shown me that anything that is a story can be de-storied and Mm re-storied. And it just takes practice. Yeah, Mm. Just like painting or swimming or anything. Um, Part
0: of what you've just described is so interesting to me in that um, the way victim culture kind of pisses me off in a bit is that it doesn't allow people to see their own strength or their own way out. And I was thinking about um, after Sophie was diagnosed, she went to a party and she said, mom, it is so awful to walk into a party now because the men in particular look at me with so much disgusting pity on their face. They're not aware that I'm going to graduate from Stanford in four years with a master. They could care less that I just ran six miles this morning. They know nothing about my story, but they're putting this victim status on me that is so annoying. What do we do to allow others to actually claim their own story? When you see someone with... With who's suffered from violence or suffering with a really devastating illness. How do we go about allowing their story to be and not put our own on them?
3: Well, Lydia, one of the things about your TED talk that the word you kept using was reinvent, reinvent, reinvent. And I loved that because it wasn't just, oh no, you have the wrong story of me. Here's the one right story of Mm. me. It's this idea that we can continually add and reinvent this story of us, that we are greater than the content of our history and we are greater than the content of our experiences. And we can just kind of keep elaborating on that story. Mm. And also just paying attention how you are speaking of yourself, Mm. are you always saying, I'm Jenna, I'm a psychologist or I'm a a depressive or I'm a, and actually it's not just the quote unquote negative stories that I see as really problematic. I see it as rigid stories. I knew of this person who she had this story. I always look on the bright side. I'm always optimistic. I'm always optimistic. Mm. And when she was a little kid, She was in this horrifically abusive situation as a little kid. Mm. And so she developed the story, I always look on the bright side, I always look on the bright side. And because she always looked on the bright side, she couldn't see a situation where she needed to get out and get some help. Oh, fascinating. It's even these kind of more positive stories, like women often have the story, well, I'm supposed to be nice. I'm a nice person. And Mm. then that can get us really trapped too. Mm -hmm. So it's about being able to sort of reinvent over and over again, whatever story is most workable, whatever lets you get to have the life you would most want to
0: live. Mm. There's a big emphasis right now on trauma-informed care. And I think it's so important for people to go back to those original traumas and to move through them and to understand what happened, to be able to own what happened and own your illness. And so um, there is a way that trauma-informed care and, and people becoming their illnesses is also also not going to lead us out of this in terms of recreating new story. Do you have people come to your practice and say, I'm I'm a depressive, I'm
2: bipolar, I'm I'm schizophrenic, I'm nothing else? Sure. Yeah. All the time. Mm -hmm. All the time. Whether we're talking about diagnosis or whether we're saying, Lydia, you were saying I'm an introvert.
1: I oh, was yeah. just thinking that while she was talking. And that's it's like two
2: point six million views in front of a huge audience. Here you are on the radio. You know that. I will sometimes see somebody running down the road in the morning. I remember doing this a while back. I thought that's so cool. I just so admire that. But I'm not a runner. And I was like, what? What the hell does that mean? Like, uh-huh. if I put on shoes and I started running, am I pretending? Oh, I'm a, I'm fake. I'm, I run every morning, but I'm I'm just faking it because I'm not really a runner. And in some weird way, it's like we aren't just one story. We're all of our stories. Yeah. And in another way, we're not any of our stories. Uh-huh. In a way, we're just the ones who live it, observe it, experience it, can continue to write new stories. Yeah. Our stories or our labels are supposed to be shorthand descriptions. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like I'm mm-hmm. Brian and I'm a psychologist. That's just tells you what I do during my working hours. But they become prescriptive, right? you know, more than Agree. more mm-hmm. than they become just descriptive. And it's just built into our language. Someone will say, so what do you do? I'm a mm-hmm. knight. That was a verb question and yeah. he gave a noun answer. Oh, interesting. Right? Mm-hmm. We are the thing we do. No, I'm just, I'm, God, I'm just Brian. Mm-hmm. You know, now I practice psychology. I play some golf. Yeah. You had some really
0: amazing ideas about some exercises people can do if they have begun to constrict their story or, or, or being too rigid about it. Would you share those, Jenna? Sure. Should I call you Dr. Lejeune? Please
3: don't. <laughs> Please do not. No. Um, it was actually... When I was watching your TED Talk, Lydia, I thought, thought of this exercise I do with my clients a lot, and I have done it for myself as, as well, but it's called Write the Character of You. Um, so I get to work with some super cool, creative, artisticy types of folks. And so what I'll have them do is I'll say, okay, so here's your job. You have to write screenplay, pretend like you're developing this character for a screenplay or a novel or a short story, and the character is you, and every event of your life has to be exactly the same. But this character of you has no backstory that's already pre-written, doesn't have already any of these character traits that you assign to you. You get to completely start fresh. Now, write what she would do in response to all of these events of your life. Most people write the superhero version of that, which is awesome because we all have a superhero inside of us. Then when you have them go back and do it again and again and again... You can see, oh, I have a superhero in me, Hmm. and I have somebody who's really scared, and I have, like, the little kid that doesn't know what to do, and I have the failure in me, Hmm. and all of those characters are within me. And again, it isn't about adopting a different story. It's about seeing, oh, I'm just telling a story about this character. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. It's Interesting thing for me is you come from a completely different practice. Your practices are both
0: completely full, and yet you both rely on story. Oh, absolutely. And writing Mm -hmm. so much. Absolutely. It gives me hope for all of the people out there who are thinking, oh, I have something to say. I have something to write down. I I have a character in me that I want people to know about.
3: Oh, I think writing is essential or some form of expression. So I'll either have people write. Sometimes people will paint their Uh, characters of them, create poems, whatever it is. It's just being able to express the self. Mm-hmm.
1: Apparently we do the same thing. I
3: think we do. I do yeah. Can I call myself a writer because you seem so much cooler than psychologists. That's, so, that's so true.
1: <laughs> What's your next project, Lydia? I have a toggle going on between a new novel, which is always incredibly daunting. Uh-huh. And yeah. Terrifying. And a new nonfiction book. Yeah. So there. and everything I've ever written has that toggle. There'll be a nonfiction version over here and a fiction version over here where That's I'm so literally cool. crossing the territory you're talking about wow. Um, wow. and it helps me write a less righteous and ego-based nonfiction story to be exploring different characters oh. and how they move and where they succeed and where mm. they fail in the fiction they they help me make better books in both categories wow Wow! And do they come out at the same time? Generally? They don't come out on top of each other, but very near each other. You can track it. Uh, Smallbacks in chronology have a very intense, intimate relationship mm, with each wow. other. Wow! Although not everybody would see that uh, to me. Oh, it's nice. really clear. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Before we leave, Lady Gaga is such a,
0: like, ah, oh, I feel about her like I do Lydia. Like I can't even <laughs> kind of be in the same room without hard somersaults she's always been interested in people of diversity, that she's always been Mm -hmm. interested in smashing all kinds of expectations of who women are supposed to be, who genders are supposed to be. This speech at the Grammys, I just want you to hear it.
3: I just want to say I'm so proud to be a part of a movie that addresses mental health issues. They're so important. And a lot of artists... A lot of artists deal with that. And we gotta take care of each other. So if you see somebody that's hurting, don't look away. And if you're hurting, even though it might be hard, try to find that bravery within yourself to dive deep and go tell somebody and take them up in your head with you. I love you. Thank you so much to the Grammys. thank you.
0: That phrase, bring someone up into your head with you. I want to leave you with that just because I thought it's it was beautiful. so incredibly beautiful. And thank you, Lydia, so much for My being pleasure. with us again. What an amazing people. Jenna and Brian, thanks again. Thank you. And that was the show. Thanks for your support of Beyond Well. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and spread the word to your friends. If you want to reach me individually, you can always reach out at Sheila at Beyond Well Media. And I hope you make it a great day.
4: FORA Health is a nonprofit alcohol and drug treatment center in Portland, Oregon that has been helping youth, adults, and families for nearly 50 years. They offer compassionate, comprehensive, and affordable care for everyone, regardless of background, orientation, or ability to pay. FORA recently opened a new state of the art campus in Portland's Southeast Gateway District, and the entire campus is healing and supportive. You can find out more about their full array of evidence-based therapies for drug and alcohol treatment at www.forahealth.org. If you or a loved one needs support, there are many options and personalized approaches to care. Reach out to Fora Health at 503-535-1151 or see the show notes for more details.